Born from the tragedy of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation made a promise to ensure we never forget. Since then, Tunnel to Towers has been committed to supporting America's heroes and their families. Heroes like U.S. Army Specialist Michael Hook. Hook was killed in Iraq when his helicopter was shot down. He enlisted in the military after graduating high school and left behind a pregnant fiancé who gave birth to a son that he would never meet. But thanks to the generosity of friends like you, Tunnel to Towers paid off the mortgage on his family's home, relieving a financial burden and bringing stability. The foundation helps Gold Star and Fallen First Responder families, as well as our nation's most severely injured heroes and homeless veterans. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. America's heroes are counting on you. 95 cents of every dollar you give goes directly to its programs. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number 2, T.org. Never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices our heroes have made for us. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. On this episode, our friend Michael Malice, he is back. He is in action and he is ready to party. Uh, The White Pill is his book, which I have right here. I was assigned this as homework by Michael. And hopefully I'll get a passing grade. I did have to read like the latter half of it quickly, but I did read it. Um, The White Pill, A Tale of Good and Evil. And I think there's a lot of lessons. There's a lot of great history in this, Michael, which I really appreciate. I think one of the areas, even for people in this country who think of themselves as history buffs or or what have you, um, the actual history of the Soviet Revolution and, and more broadly, what was really going on in the Soviet Union is a massive... Uh, a massive hole in the education of American history, I think. And your book, again, right here, goes a nice way to addressing some of that gap. I think that's also partly by design that there's this massive hole because what we're taught in schools, we like to have a nice little narrative that there's the good guys and the bad guys and the founding fathers were all the good guys and the Brits were the bad guys and then the North were the good guys and the South were the bad guys and then World War II the allies were the good guys and the Axis were the bad guys. Now it's clear that the Axis were the bad guys, but we're partners with Stalin. And if you start getting into too much of what Stalin did, all of a sudden that little good guys, bad guys thing falls apart. And I think that does an enormous disservice. As a friend of mine pointed out, which genocidal ideology should I be more worried about? The one that lost or the one that won? So I think it's important for, especially conservatives, um, who kind of often have this, incorrect idea that things started getting bad 20 years ago and all these different organizations, whether the universities or Hollywood or Washington were somehow co-opted by the left. This is not only not new, but what had been going on, especially in the 30s, it was so much worse and so much more depraved in many ways um, than what we're facing now that I thought was important to put forward You know exactly what uh, half of the world effectively went through. Um, and it saddens me that so many people, and obviously I was born in the Soviet Union, so many people and what they went through is being forgotten when this is a victory that happened in the lifetimes of pretty much everyone listening to this show. Yes, you, you could definitely argue the greatest, uh, in terms of population and, and number of people, the greatest liberation of humanity uh, to freedom from from abject tyranny occurred in your lifetime and in my lifetime. And it's really not thought of in in that context i think i think nearly enough i don't think people understand 
you know, we think uh, we have a bit of a cartoonish view. And look, I love Rocky Four. I'm not saying it's not a really fun movie, but, you know, the Soviets, uh, I think in retrospect, are thought of almost more as, um, and the whole Soviet system, as, you know, poor, but poor, buffoonish, oafish. You know, yes. we have all these, these this this notion of the commissar, whether it's in it's in um, the hunt for Red October or you know any of the any of the pop culture, it's always some fat Russian guy with a bunch of medals on who's like, like I'm drinking vodka. And it's like these people were actually sending women and children and 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 everybody to effectively uh, extermination camps in Siberia and to mass imprisonment and to mass torture. And it's not thought of in quite that way. And I I think your book explores that. I also think it's important for you to continue to tell people why is that michael why why is it that the there's always a soft peddling of the soviet atrocities well i think one of the big reasons and i'm, I'm confident that you'd agree is that so many people in the west had their, had blood on their hands as a consequence uh despite what you know politico and the new york times might tell you in 2023 there was never a strong nazi presence in the united states this was not a thing you had the bond but they were basically kind of marginalized and a joke there was very much a very strong, not just communist in the sense of, oh, I believe in communism as an ideal, but literally many people answering directly to Stalin uh, and the far side of what later became the Iron Curtain. And the one time when they were accountable for their actions, the fact that you know we gave someone who's killed millions of his own countrymen, uh, got handed the atom bomb and, and things like this, the fact that so many of these Western outlets are still in power today, are still treated with respect today, is I think a major reason why this is soft peddled. There's a great quote in the book that I found. You know, we we were all told that, you know, the night the McCarthyism, you know, witch hunts, and you know, a, a playwright. I'm liking her name. She was like, but there weren't witches in Salem, but there were these communists. Yes. These were people actively and intentionally members of an organization dedicated to secretly and to violent overthrow of the United States government in the service of what had been at the time the most evil or maybe one of the two most evil governments on earth. So it's never framed in that way. And I think I did what little I could do to point out exactly what it was that was so bad about their views. It's not that they're just, look, I'm for equality and you know, Buck, everyone has to have a job and we need more housing. Please, you know, it is so removed from that. It is defending people being tortured. It is defending uh, children being taught in school to turn their parents into the police, even if they their parents have retribution and kill them. It is starvation for political purposes. It is mass deportations of many peoples from their ancestral lands in order to break them and for the sake of the common good so that they're subservient to the state. None of these things are discussed in the West and frankly, I think in many ways it's a failure of conservatism where, you know, the worst thing that often is said about, about communism is that it's godless, but it's so it's not just godless, it's downright satanic. Yes, no, it goes beyond that. There's a, there's a sadism, and actually that's yes. for, for anybody, and you, there's so many really poignant um, anecdotes in, in the book um, about, you know, for example, the, the little girl, this is from Michael's book, there's a little girl who is outside in a bread line. We always think of the Soviet bread lines. And again, we have this, this sort of mentality of it's people, you know, they're in the babushka and it's sad and they're in line there. It's like, well, actually the, the guy at the front of the line sees a girl who's part of the Kulak class. Cause they're all in line waiting for food. Right. And 
hits her with a knife and kicks her in the stomach and she dies right there. A little girl who's starving that dies in front of everybody. And his response to this, as you write in the book, is, you know, well, you know, you never know where the class enemies are going to come from. Right. Or there's some, you know, this is another sign of of the weakness of our class enemies. There's no humanity. There's no decency. And and that's just that's a, a vignette that I think exposes um, so much more of this. I mean, for example, uh, the Gulag Archipelago, which I, 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 people, you know, Orwell is amazing and gets a lot of credit, although Orwell was kind of a slowly reforming socialist himself. Um, Orwell no, he wasn't reforming of, at all. He was a hardcore socialist of the day he died. Well, he went less, he went less, less socialist, I think I would argue. He was starting to he see the problems of a socialist every, system. He said explicitly, every word I write is in defense of democratic socialism. I don't understand it. Like, democratic socialism. Right. Not Are you going to tell me. Yeah. Not a thought. Well, I mean, but no, but this is no, but this is the game they play all the time. Like, what's the difference between Bernie Sanders and Stalin? One is democratic socialism and one is, you know, socialism, socialism. So, no, I actually I do think that there's some there's some game that maybe it's false, but there's a game that's played with the moderation of what the socialist intent actually is. Sure. And Orwell recognized that a truly empowered socialist state, now national socialist state, but that would be a whole other conversation too, um, created the horrors that he wrote about. Anyway, I didn't want to get into the the Orwell discussion um, as much as I just wanted to say uh, Solzhenitsyn, I think, is as important an author and is probably oh, yeah. assigned in school, you know, one percent as often or, you know, one tenth maybe as often. And, you know, Solzhenitsyn, I think, in the Gulag Archipelago, the thing that that really strikes people is just how evil people in this system were willing to be every day. And it was nothing and no one cares. Oh, it, it wasn't just they're willing. They were excited. This yeah, was their chance who, to have yeah. power over somebody else. Uh, the people who were arrested for political purposes were told explicitly, you are lower than rapists and murderers because they're still people. You're an enemy of the people. And it was encouraged. And we see this still to this day in North Korea. It is, you're encouraged to be cruel and vindictive and make them suffer because you're the good guys and they're something far beneath human. This was something obviously very mirrored in, in Nazi ideology. So it, it's, it's, extremely dis, you know, it's extremely disturbing when you look at historically what these systems mean in practice. Right. Because, you know, there's this whole idea of what communism is great in, in theory, but bad in practice. What everything's great in theory. What does that even mean? Like what kind of idea is bad in theory? It is practice where you determine whether an idea is good or not. And when we saw over decades, over how many countries, uh, what this meant for the average person, you know, children chained to cribs because uh, they were handed over by their starving parents who were told the government can raise them better than they could. Uh, who gave up on crying because they knew no one was going to come to pick up, pick them up. You and I, and pretty much everyone listening to the show can sit all day long. And if we try to like rack our brains for how sadistic we could be, we would never think of half these things because we're, our brains aren't wired like this. We're not raised in cultures where it's considered appropriate, at least yet, uh, to turn power against the weak and, and those who we don't like and just do just the most vindictive, vicious things and pat ourselves on the back for it. I um, want to bring this into our, our current context a little bit, actually. And, and I, I make the argument to people and I can tell that it's, it's really uncomfortable for them. But, you know, you and I were in contact a lot uh, during uh, the COVID and what was going on in New York and the lockdowns. And, and I, I try to remind everyone that there was, to your point about 
almost a glee. Like there was a glee that some people took yes. in the extreme of it all. And there was a, a clear joy that you would see in the eyes of people, just in the eyes, who are mask police, for example, walking around and or, or telling you, you know, why aren't you close to me? Social distancing. They they took they took some level of joy in treating their fellow human beings as though they were unclean one and also that they could lord it over them in in some way. Yes. And I say to everybody, you know, OK, yeah, it wasn't you know, they weren't you know, hurting us off into camps. I mean, they started to do something like that in Australia. They obviously did do that in China. Um, but it also was a was a, a virus with a real fatality rate, a real fatality rate of, you know, point zero two maybe 0.002, depends on whose numbers now you want to believe. Spanish flu had a 5% fatality rate in the United States back when 1918, 1920. So I feel like if people were willing to do that for something that wasn't that extreme, that we're actually much closer to falling into a full-blown totalitarian society in America than anybody had previously realized. One of the big delusions I think a lot of people have is that America's magic in the sense that these things that happen in other countries can't possibly happen here. And I think a lot of people, especially on the right, when they looked at how their fellow countrymen acted during COVID, had a big wake-up call as to how many people really regard liberty as their highest value. And what we saw, and I learned in my research for the White Pill, is in East Germany, they had an enormous, the biggest uh, informant network the world had ever seen, thanks to the Stasi, which was their secret police. And after after the wall fell and Germany was reunified, just the beautiful, beautiful scenes and, and some of my favorite parts of the book, you know, the Stasi archives were opened and uh, a reporter spoke to one of these former Stasi recruiters. And Buck, you and I probably thought, I certainly thought that, okay, here's how it works. They capture me. And they're like, give me five names or else we're going to kill your family. And like, Buck, I love you. But if I got to drop your name to save my family, it's going to happen. And I, I think the situation would be reversed. You'd hold out as much as you could. But at a certain point, you're like, listen, I'm being, I can't sleep. You're threatening my children. You're threatening my mom. I just got to give you names. I just can do anything to get the torture to stop. That's not what happened. In East Germany, they were people who were just bored or lonely or just wanted someone to talk to or wanted to have the opportunity to feel important for once in their lives. So see, we don't have to speculate as to what it takes to get people to turn into informants and to be uh, amenable to totalitarian systems. We've seen it historically, and we've seen it here during COVID. And I would hope people realize that this is far more pervasive and far more universal part of the human experience than even I uh, would have liked to have believed. You know, uh, the there's a Solzhenitsyn story that I remember where there's a woman who goes into the, you know, this is obviously in the Soviet era. A woman goes into the, effectively the local police station and says, you know, the constables and says, um, because her neighbor had been seized, another woman at night, never to be seen again, seized, but left behind an infant, like a, you know, six month old baby. And, and she goes, the neighbor goes to the police station to say, you know, Hey, is the mother coming back? If not, you know, should I step in and, and do something here to, to help out? We, we, this baby's going to starve to death. They arrested the neighbor. And when asked, when, when, when asked later on why one of these individuals, why they arrested the neighbor, the explanation that Solzhenitsyn heard from a, you know, another bureaucrat, another police officer was to save them the time. That was the attitude. It's like, oh, you're well, already here? We're just going to grab you because we're probably going to have to grab you at some point anyway. And you've already showed up to the station. 
So now you also go into the cell and you either go to Siberia or you just go up against a wall and we execute you. Thank you for saving us the time. That was the attitude. And, you know, obviously that's a, a, a lethal matter and it's particularly depraved. But I, I really did get the sense, and I know people get mad at me when I say this, I get the sense that there were a lot of people who during COVID in this country not only would have complied with, but would have felt, um, here, here's a, maybe a better way of putting it, Michael. There were people who were openly celebrating when other human beings died of a virus because they thought that they represented yes. the anti-Fauci point of view. That was widespread. Yes. yes. Explicit and constant. But look, to, to that point with that with that baby, the other reason for arrest is this is a country where kids are treated well. That's the narrative. So if you're pointing out an example where kids are treated poorly, you're, you're a provocateur. You're a troublemaker. Come with me. So what happens in these systems is pointing out hypocrisies or problems with the status quo in and of itself labels you as a counter-revolutionary. So everyone very quickly has to learn to keep their heads down and keep their mouths shut. And this is something that those of us coming from there, it's just very weird to me talking to people who've been raised in like complete Americans because a lot of times they'll say things that's just so different from how I was raised. And it's just things that just kind of, I guess, you know, you're culturally, you're just taught certain ways. Like Americans are very big on like, I remember I had a group of people where everyone's trying to give each other advice. And it's like, you have a problem at work. Well, the American answer is always, well, take the person, sit down and talk with them, have it out. And for someone from a Soviet background, it's like, no, no, no. The first question is, well, what power does this person have? Because they might smile and nod at the meeting, but then they'll stab you in the back later. Are they going to, you know, start a file on you? This is the kind of psychology that develops in these countries. And this is something Americans, I think, are thankfully very naive about, about how vindictive and petty small bureaucrats often can be. Uh, and, and sadly, I think some Americans are starting to learn uh, the, the true nature of that. And a good example of this was when the parents were protesting about the stuff being taught to their kids. And now the parents were under investigation uh, and being labeled as terrorists or being alluded to as terrorists. This is the sort of thing that Americans just never think of. But it's like, yes, the government will, if the government can arrest terrorists very quickly, everyone who they don't like becomes a terrorist. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, somebody who, you know, there, there were, there have been two moments, I think, politically for me that have really shifted, you could say my Overton window or my, my perception of the country and what we are, what we are up against. Um, the first one was actually Kavanaugh, not be, not even because it's like, Oh my gosh, Supreme court, so much is at stake that the Kamala Harris was among them, that the most uh, powerful voices in the Democrat party and the Democrat Senate uh, at the time were willing to, clearly erroneously and without any basis in any fact or any reality call a man a rapist in front of his family and the whole country just because they didn't want him to have a job um that means they do it to your dad that means they do it to your brother they do it to anybody and feel good about themselves too it does not matter it did not matter to them and then with covid as well the the immiseration of millions of people the deaths of despair that occurred as a result, the businesses that were destroyed, the livelihoods that were ruined. I mean, we go down the whole list. Not only were there people going along with all this, and this was the part of it that really rocked me as a New Yorker. It's why I'm no longer a New Yorker. People thought they were happy. They were like, oh, we're great. We're the good people. The monsters thought that they were the heroes, Michael. That's the problem. 
but but Buck, I'm going to push back a little bit, and I don't think you're going to disagree. The Democrats should have patted themselves on the back about Kavanaugh because none of them faced any consequences whatsoever for what they did other than fundraising and being regarded as leaders of a movement. Chuck Grassley, who was either the chairman or the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, has sent out press releases. Uh, I point out this story all the time, how he wrote letters to, I think, the Justice Department and either the FBI or CIA demanding answers as to how Julie Swetnick, who had no connection whatsoever to Kavanaugh, who was claiming that multiple gang rape parties she attended, he was somehow responsible for. Avenatti, her attorney, went to jail. They couldn't get her on CNN fast enough. Grassley wrote a letter being like, what are the consequences for this woman? And in his press release, he's boasting that his letters for a couple of years have now been ignored. So when you have one party that is willing to do this, and the Republican response is, well, I'm going to write a sternly, sternly worded letter and no one's going to answer me and I'm fighting for you. When you have this asymmetry, of course, the incentives are always going to be to be as tyrannical as possible because there's no downside. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, so yeah. you saw that one coming. But let me ask you, um, we're going to take a pause, Michael, because I want to put in a word from our sponsor. But a question I want to put out there that you can think about and we'll come back to you in a second. How close in in ethos how close in sentiment are the most radical elements of the Democrat Party in this country and your average Soviet commissar circa 1950? Let's pick a time. But we'll, I want to come back to that in, in a second. Um, born from a tragedy of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been honoring America's heroes ever since. Look, it's a really important organization that honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. This year alone, hundreds of gold star and fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year. More than 1,500 are receiving housing and services this year. Through the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute, the foundation is educating kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Please help America to never forget its greatest heroes. Join me in donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. All right, Michael, returning to our question, uh, how close are the, uh, not even the most radical, how close are the administrative elements of the Democrat Party in this country to the uh, apparatus of the Soviets? Uh, I, I think I'm going to duck the question a little bit, but give you a, a, a answer you'll be happy with. I think the Democratic Party and the members of the Democratic Party are far more moderate and mainstream than the members of the corporate press. I had a poll on my Twitter once and I said, if you had, these are two choices people watching the show won't like, but if you had to choose to be the Supreme Court and you had the choices were nine random Democratic senators or nine random members of the New York Times uh, editorial board, which would you choose? And I think it was like 80-20 in favor of the, the Democratic Senate. The New York Times and all these agencies, they're the ones who are making the Democratic Party wag. It's not the other way around. And I'll give you an example that demonstrates this point. Let's suppose I'm a Democratic Party congressman. I hate Trump. I think he's the worst. He's praising white nationalists of Charles, all the other nonsense, you know, the whole rigmarole. Yeah, at the same time, I don't think he committed any impeachable offenses. I think he shouldn't be president. He's terrible, so on and so forth. How could I go in front of my constituents as a Democratic congressperson when 24-7 they're hearing Trump-Russia collusion, Ukraine phone call, so on and so forth, and say, guys, he's horrible, the worst president ever, but that's not enough for impeachment. I would not be in that position. So that demonstrates who has the power on the left intellectually in this country. It is far more 
that the media, who is accountable to no one, as opposed to every day, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and Kevin McCarthy, and Chuck Schumer will tell you how the other person's terrible. No one is uh, holding the New York Times or the Washington Post accountable other than idiots like myself on Twitter. So that, to me, is the far bigger concern. So, And as to the uh, apparatchiks in the 50s, they didn't really care. They weren't ideologues. It's like, or I think it's uh, 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 Upton Sinclair is a big character in this book, and there's a quote ascribed to him where uh, it's almost impossible to teach a man to believe something when his salary depends on him not believing it. Mm-hmm. If I'm in the 1950s and the only way I could get food is to parrot Stalinism, and if I slip up, that sword's going to kill me and my family, I'll be singing louder than everybody else. You know, and the, you know, the old saying goes, you don't want to be the first one to stop clapping for Stalin. So I, I think people need to appreciate that a lot of times these, or, these uh, entities and these organizations aren't a function literally of ideology so much as people responding to very perverse incentives. And often those incentives are a matter of life and death for them and their families. I also think that there are, there are things, um, and you get into some of them in the book in terms of the uh, level of, of awfulness, uh, the everyday awfulness too. It's not, yes. bad things will happen in a lot of countries, but you'll remember them as, well, that was an awful moment, you know, that that was something terrible that happened, but it was just every day, right? The everyday awfulness of, of living under the Soviet regime. Um, but there are also stories that I think people just, ref- they just refuse to believe. Um, and I think it's so interesting that in the, uh, the death of Stalin, which you know, was a pretty well-made movie for what it is, that Love whole it. sequence, that whole sequence in the beginning where Stalin calls in and wants a copy, uh, however they did it, you know, old school records, I forget what it is, but wanted a copy of the, of the, you know, Moscow orchestra performance and they had already finished. They did wake up the conductor and bring everyone back and do a re-recording of it. Like they brought everybody back. And I believe they even tried to bring back um, members of the audience too. So they had a performance at the main theater. And I, th- I think it was Moscow. It might've been St. Petersburg, but I think it was Moscow. And they actually brought everybody back. And people look, like, there's no way that actually happened. That actually did happen. Because everyone was terrified if they didn't do it, he was going to have their family killed as well as, the, you know, all the horrible things that you can imagine. That was life for people. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, the, it, the artists are, you know, had a particularly tough time because if everything, anything can be perceived as in any way not praising the system enough. Uh, we see that even here with the political correctness to a far lesser extent. Obviously, people aren't getting murdered. But there's this one story, I want to get this exact, the exact details um, uh, here of... Um, there was a play that Stalin didn't like. Um, and basically overnight, you know, your career is just ruined. Uh, people can be sent away. Uh, um, uh, everyone who's ever been associated with you uh, uh, gets, I'm, I'm trying to get the exact, um, uh, I think it was Shostakovich. I want to get it exactly here. Yeah, Shostakovich. It was in 1936. You know, he had a play called Lady, The Lady Macbeth of Matensk. Uh, there were articles about it two days later. And the community stood up for him because Shostakovich was and remains one of the great composers of all time. Stalin just didn't happen to like one. As a consequence of this, so um, the director's wife, he stayed with the director's house. Her wife was stabbed to death in the eyes. Um, when a marshal of the Soviet Union, this guy's very high up, Tuchkachevsky, he was defended Shostakovich. He was tortured and shot. His body was sent to a landfill. The librettist of the of the uh, of the uh, performance was arrested and shot. His ex girlfriend vanished. His brother in law, who was a physicist, his sister, his mother in law, and his uncle, they were all arrested just because Stalin didn't like this play. So you know, to your point, 
it's not that people were living in fear of like, you know, maybe Buck, you had this tweet in college and crap, what if someone finds a screenshot and it's gonna look bad for my career? You're newly married. You, I've met your brothers. If something happens to you, or if they can't get to you, but let's suppose I wanna get to Buck, I don't need to get to Buck. I've got a circle around you. And let me tell you, everyone listening to this, can imagine themselves being tough and there's nothing they can do to me. You could arrest me. I'm not going to break. Bring in your wife, bring in your brothers, put them in that cell, see what happens. And this is something I think in the West, we're so um, correctly proud of our respect for the individual and individual rights. It never even enters our head that innocent people who are simply family members, it's not only automatically that they're targets, it's the law. It was a crime, a felony to be married to an enemy of the people. And if you're arrested, you're an okay, enemy of the people. It's like, you can't defend yourself. You know, the spouse can't say, well, I wasn't really arrested uh, uh, married to them. And right away, what happens also is the children become orphans. And there was a lot of hand-wringing in the Kremlin because all these kids started killing themselves with good reason. Because overnight, they were orphans and no one would associate with them because why are you taking in a child of the enemy of the people? So the level of depravity and evil in these societies is so much worse than just like, oh, someone's this fat guy, like, you know, some fat buffoon on the top and it's his brother gets a pay cut and you're hungry and you have to learn stupid things at school. Oh, please. Like that is nothing. Uh, that's totally scratching the surface of what's going on in these societies. Yeah. I think that people also um, don't spend enough time or we don't, it's not thought of very often how much North Korea really tried in many ways. Yes, there are huge, var- you know, there's people make the case that uh, a actually a racist Japanese imperial mindset was borrowed by essentially an ultra nationalist, ultra racial identity as part of North Korean yes. ideology. But also in terms of the machinery of North Korea and how the Communist Party or whatever operates there is borrowed from the Soviets. I mean, very, you know, even even the fashion choices in a lot of ways. Not you even can say they're borrowed from China, too. But guess what? The Chinese communists borrowed them from the Soviets. Not borrowed, implanted. You know, yeah, it was just it. directly yeah. imported. In fact, a friend of mine, Peter, uh, when he was looking at my photos of North Korea, he was just blown away. He goes, this looks like where I grew up, but there's Asian people walking around. Like, he couldn't wrap his head around it. It looked identical to him. Um, so this is one of the reasons I went to North Korea. It's like, all right, this is my only chance to see what it was like for my family, you know, uh, 70 or 80 years ago. Uh, and let me assure everyone, it's, it's no picnic, uh, to put it mildly, although we did have a picnic. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details. Yeah. What, how does a society fall into this stuff? I mean, because that's always the, you know, we, we look at the understanding the scope of the problem um, and understanding how awful it was. And we're far away from that. And I mean, I'm always amazed too. I read about, um, uh, you know, what is it? The, the Conquest, uh, the Robert Conquest book. Um, where he talks about the Great Purge, right? And, and, and how yes, the all the academics called, yeah. initially, you know, in the West, were saying that, oh, it wasn't that bad, and it's actually even worse than anybody had, had anticipated. But the entirety of Western world academia was essentially 
trying to cover up or or certainly uh, vastly diminish what what happened there. We, you know, we we don't learn these things uh, enough. But also, what is the what is the tipping point, right? Because people are sitting here. I was just saying before. I mean, COVID COVID was the closest thing I've ever felt like in this country to we may actually be living in a totalitarian state at some point. I didn't think it was underway, right? I mean, sitting at home ordering, you know, watching Netflix, getting Uber Eats. But the mentality that people had was scary. I mean, people that are people that are you know masking up their three year old and are willing to scream at people if they get within you know ten feet of them because they're so scared of them. Like there was something dramatically wrong with tens of millions of people in this country. I, I don't think there was something dramatically wrong. I think there remains something dramatically wrong that was activated. I don't think those people's psychology changed as a consequence of COVID going away. I think COVID gave an excuse for people who have neurosis or anxiety or other some kind of things that are suboptimal mental conditions to have a rationalization that's external and an opportunity to act out their aggression uh, and hysteria toward others. And to your point about the intellectuals, Theodore Dreiser, who is probably the greatest naturalist writer of all time, like he was discussing what was going on in the Soviet Union. And he just basically concluded, um, what good would freeing those prisoners do? So this was something, and we see this still today with many people uh, who are pro-government to such an extent, that they have this guinea pig of society. It's like, all right, let's try this experiment over there. If it doesn't work out, at least we'll have the data. And, you know, Rand, Ayn Rand, who's, uh, who opens up the book with her testifying in front of Congress, she had this great quote. She was on Donahue in 1979. And he goes, why are you so harsh on these people? Like, why can't you just say that you disagree? And she goes, because they don't hesitate to sacrifice whole nations. Like they don't, I, I think this is something Americans like don't really get the depth of evil. They don't care if literally millions of people die or are tortured or starved because they have this idea of how society should run and there's nothing that's going to stop them from feeling important and having their worldview imposed on infinitely innocent people. And by definition in their mindset, if you are opposed to their machinations, you are no longer innocent and therefore, whatever happens to you, it's your fault. I actually so, think you see that you see that reality. Um, you see flashes of it with a lot of the climate change stuff. Climate change yeah. is a religious belief now. I mean, they, they play all these games. You don't believe in climate change. You say, well, climate's been changing forever. Of course, the climate's changing. Climate change is a religious belief. Um, and, but you see it, though, because if you start to say, hey, you realize if we radically decarbonized um, that the there's still about a billion people right? Give or take that are in pretty dire poverty globally. It used to be a lot more. The good news is that, you know, global poverty is in the last 50 to last 75 years down by, uh, by leaps and bounds, but there's still about a billion people. If you do this stuff and you were to actually enforce these rules about CO2, there would be a lot of people without enough food to eat. A lot of people would not only uh, die of starvation, but just a whole lot more people die of the malnutrition and, and the other components of you know, being able to uh, live in a prosperous society, even if you don't die necessarily from lack of food, if you don't have enough food, your health is dramatically impacted, et cetera. Michael, they don't they don't blink when you they're just like, yeah, but I mean, you know, we're trying to save CO2 emissions, man. Like we're trying to save the world here. And I actually think there those would, people are I think they're scary. I think they don't realize they're frightening, but they're terrifying in a way. Well, because there's no mind there. Um it, there was this, I forget which African country, but when the lockdowns were happening, there was one country where they're like, 
if we lock down, we die. We don't have fridges. We don't have stores of food. We're living hand to mouth. We need to go farm and get today's food. And basically it was like, well, let them eat cake. So, you know, what you're speaking of, again, I think it's so much more um, malevolent than people realize. And again, the reason why Americans especially don't realize how malevolent it is, is that there's an entire information superstructure designed in place to teach us since kindergarten that people are basically good and that when people in power do bad things, maybe there's like a some bad corrupt CEO or some mayor who's on the take and Aaron Brockovich is going to come in and put him in his place. But for the most part, everyone sure makes mistakes, but no one is inherently evil. And if you think that they are, you're a deranged conspiracy theorist. And when you have this as your basis for uh, evaluating politics and people in power and governments and so on and so forth, it's almost impossible to realize how little those in places like this value human life. And if the choice is between their position and thousands of people suffering, you know, horrors, it's, it's almost a joke to them. It's like, well, what's the catch? You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't, if anything, they feel powerful that they can wave their hand and have so many people uh, kiss the ring. Well, this is, I mean, again, another, another area that I think illustrates this really well um, is the, the very obvious uh, positioning of really well off to very wealthy white liberals uh, on things like police. And I know, I know you're not a big police guy, but on especially um, females. Yeah, on issues of, of criminal justice. I mean, you know, if we if we do have a population that is not supposed to be policing itself, which is what we do, even though we do have some, you know, people caring, um, the notion that you would condemn people living in high violence, um, you know, ninety percent plus minority neighborhoods to living to living with even more violence, so that you know you can go to a Nancy Pelosi fundraiser and then hang out with a bunch of like producers for Netflix shows and have your Chardonnay glasses and feel good about yourself, they do not care. Even when I try to explain this to libs who are very, you know, who, who think that they're very attuned to things, when I tell them that your BLM marches and you're, you're giving money to these organizations and all this stuff makes you feel good, there will be more people who are dead because of what that position is. They do not care. It does not, it does not affect them. When, I mean, look, the whole Democrat Party it doesn't affect them until it comes time for elections. Then all of a sudden they pretend that they never said these things. I, I'm going to say something about the police that I'm sure you're going to agree with. My problem with the police is things like Kenosha, where not only are they refusing to do their jobs, which is in and of itself a problem when you know massive unrest is happening and police things are being torn down, it's that they were punishing people who were trying to do their jobs for them. Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, when he turned himself in, was pepper sprayed by the cops. And then they tried to, they put him a show trial. If they had their druthers, he'd be in jail for life. And even if he got off, there's no one who's listening who can tell me that being arrested and having the death sentence over your head isn't a traumatic experience for literally anybody. So that's my issue with the police that I'm sure you're going to agree with. That's the problem. No, no, I, 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 again, I don't disagree with that either. I actually want to take a moment here for capitalism, Mike, if I can. The MyPillow 2.0, which is amazing. I've got them here at home. Patented adjustable too. fill of the original MyPillow, but now brand new exclusive fabric made with temperature regulating thread. This stuff is great. I love it. Carrie loves it. We're sleeping on our MyPillow 2.0s every night. The softest, smoothest, coolest pillow you'll ever own. The MyPillow 2.0 comes at a great deal right now. Buy one, get one free for a limited time on use promo code BUCK. That's promo code B-U-C-K. 
MyPillow 2.0, like I said, temperature regulating thread, 100% made here in the USA. Uh, MyPillow comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, get this buy one, get one free offer in the MyPillow 2.0, enter promo code BUCK, that's promo code B-U-C-K. The My and, and you know what happens when you get the my pillow you get a free copy of mike lindell's book called from crackhead to ceo and it's a lenticular cover and it changes from his crackhead face to his like professional smiling ceo face it's really cool i have a copy of it here yeah oh yeah it's amazing yeah. My, mike is mike is an incredible uh an incredible american success story i mean when you think about i think i uh you know you think about a crack addiction which uh, short of opioid addiction is probably one of the very hardest i think to uh to be that's because it's so good they're not using crack because they don't like it. I mean, look, the op- opioid receptors in the brain, anybody, will, there's apparently nothing, and this is why it's so dangerous, right? There's nothing that feels, and Mike has been way too, I'm talking about Mike Malice, by the way, for anybody. Mike Malice has been way too well behaved this whole interview, by the way. He's been, he's had his thinking cap on, talking history. Am I wrong, though? He hasn't said anything yet to just intentionally try to get me in trouble, which is one of his favorite games. Because then I go, because if I don't say that, he says something and I go, oh, I keep going. And then I get my people who are like, well, how, how could you let him say that? I'm Buck, like, ah, it's Buck, malice. Buck, if you started smoking crack, your dad could become president. Well, everything about that. Hmm. I did not think about that until now. And that's yeah. actually an interesting point. Also, Hunter Biden, by the way, you'd think like kind of a spoiled, connected kid. Crack is not usually the option. No, that's not, you know. Yeah, I've, it's such a low class gutter drug and the guy has money uh, and he's trashy, but not in the crack trashy way. You would think he'd be a junkie, maybe a cokehead. Uh, it's 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 I don't know what's going on in that household, but it, it it's very rare, rare that these children of privilege are become crackheads. Do you um, Hunter Biden? Do you think he's going to get you know, that's what we're talking about here. Do you think he's going to get prosecuted? No. I don't think there's ever consequences for uh, a Democratic Party people. It, all you, the consequences are almost I, never really one direction. You and, and I'll I give agree. you. Clay you know, and I, I have, was, a, have an on-air bet over this. I was like, oh, I was like, Clay, oh, he already owes me one steak dinner, and he has doubled down because he said last year Hunter Biden's going to get indicted. I said, Clay, that's crazy, and we bet a steak on air. So this is all very public; everyone knows. I won. Now he wants to do a double. And I'm like, how many? Of you, how many steaks? I mean, fortunately, Clay's got plenty of money, but I was like, how many steaks of yours am I going to take? The one who got put away, two of them, uh, Rob Blagojevich, Rob Blagojevich and Kwame Kilpatrick, I think Kilpatrick was the last name, both got went to jail and Trump commuted or pardoned both of them. So not only is he, are the, do the Democrats never go to jail, when the Democrats do go to jail, the Republicans let them out. You know, you just reminded me actually, um, since, I want to, since I want to just start getting angry, people angry at me and get in trouble here. Uh, what happens in the Republican election? What happens in the primary? What happens in the general 2024? Given where things are right now, what do you see happening? Oh, um, I think it's going to be, I, I'm shocked at to what extent Trump is going full bore against DeSantis this early. Uh, I think he only knows how to do offense, which is not a bad thing. I, I'm very much for doing offense. I think he is in a lot of trouble because it is now, um, there's an excuse for me, if I'm Facebook, if I'm uh, CNN, Fox, to be like the guy fomented an insurrection, I can't give him airtime. So this is the first time I think in like recent history where there is some kind of corporate explanation for not taking a candidate's money. 
And that is something that's a real big handicap. Uh, he used Twitter to get elected president. For him to leave that money on the table, to me, I'm not his advisor, obviously, seems crazy. Um, and I'm also, I, I think that, I think people underestimate that the biggest issue Trump is facing, in my opinion, in 2024, is the Republican Party establishment. Because, And here's the other thing. If he became president, Mitch McConnell would team up with the Democrats in two seconds to get him removed from office. And they'd have those 67 votes quite easily, in my opinion. Wow. Interesting. We're Am I wrong? This one, because... Ah, man, I, I, I'm ever, even honestly, never mind 2016, 2022 makes it feel like any prediction can be, it's just, it's a fool's Do you think that Mitch McConnell cares far more about his relationship with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden than he does about the people of Kentucky? Yes, for sure. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, that's very true. So you think, but you think Trump probably wins a primary against DeSantis? No, you don't. I think. I, I think they're going to do whatever they can to screw him out of the situation, including, if necessary, excluding him from the debates. Uh, it's not going to be like 2016. And I, I also think they've been successful in making him radioactive enough that it's going to be very hard for him to hire quality people. Because think about it. If I've got a good resume, right, why am I ruining my life for the sake of this guy who once the campaign's over, if I quit, he's going to go on Truth Central and talk about what an idiot I, I am. So he, it's going to be very hard for him to get. And staffing, I think even his biggest supporters admit, was a huge issue for him throughout his White House. He's the one hiring Fauci and John Bolton and, and Jared Kushner and every other, you know, uh, Rents Priebus. None of these are, are particularly MAGA type people, to put it mildly. So I think this is going to be a major issue for him going forward. What's the, so you finished the book. Back to the white pill here, and it's uh, this way we can bring our uh, discussion to uh, close this time until you invite me on the Michael Malice show, which has not happened. I don't think it's happened since COVID. I'm just going to call you out right now. I don't think I've been on. Well, Malice. I try to have likable guests. Wow. See, that's what he does. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tweet that clip out. So everybody be like, see, he's so Please mean. Then people would actually see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll retweet it. So, so the white pill you say at the end is, is effectively that. While um, it is not guaranteed effectively that we have to lose to tyranny, um, we can fight, right? We can keep fighting. So what does that look like for us here? It, there's a lot of people in the West and in America who thinks America's a wrap, that it's doomed, so on and so forth. I can't, my, one of my biggest points is how do you look at Mitch McConnell and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and John Fetterman and say to yourself, I can't beat these people. They're too important and smart and powerful. When you put it in those terms, you realize what an absurdity it is. And something that you and I, I, I completely in lockstep agreement are is that if there's any glimmer of hope for a better future for ourselves and our families, we have to uh, do whatever we can to fight for that future. Even if you know we lose, at least when you meet your maker, you could be like, I did the best I could with what I had. And there are so many forces, especially in the Republican Party, who want you to settle, who want you to compromise, who are like, guys, grow up, be rational, be realistic. None of this is going anywhere. You have to work within the system. And this is just always how it's, it's been. Those people are the most dangerous ones because they're the ones trying to get you to get down on your knees voluntarily instead of being forced to. The White Pill is the book. Tale of Good and Evil, Michael Malice, tells a good tale. Good to be with you, sir. Thanks for hanging.
Always a pleasure, Buck. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation supports America's greatest heroes, our service members, and first responders who die or are severely injured in the line of duty, as well as homeless veterans. These are heroes we all owe a debt of gratitude to. The Foundation's Gold Star, Fallen First Responders, Smart Home, and Homeless Veteran programs honor the sacrifices made for us. We're honoring the men and women who risk their lives and bodies for our country and our communities. The Foundation's Never Forget programs engage people in 9-11 remembrance across America with over 80 runs, walks, and climbs a year. Not to mention there are dozens of golf outings and barbecues. The Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute educates kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day while helping our nation keep its vow to never forget. More than 95 cents of every dollar you donate to Tunnel to Towers goes to its programs. Never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of our country's greatest heroes. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T2T.org.